Tyler's message is called on the carpet. Have you ever been called on the carpet? It's a summon for scolding or rebuke, and today we say in different words, I call it a gnawing on the derriere. So you, you, you understand what, how those words translate into that, actually. The term began on the carpet, which was in the early 1700s, referred to a cloth carpet covering a conference table, and therefore came to mean under consideration or discussion. But in the 19th century, however, in America, carpet meant floor covering, and the expression first recorded in 1902 alluded to being called before or reprimanded by a person rich or powerful enough to have carpet. Here's the synonyms for called on the carpet. To base, to berate, to blast, to blame, to censure, to rail against, to revile, revile, to scold, to vituperate. Now, you ever heard that word vituperate? That's a new one I learned this week. So if somebody's going to give you a vituperate and you know what you're in for. Tonguelation is another one. Usually the person has erred uh, and done something wrong to be called on the carpet. As the first service was totally honest when I asked for a show of hands that anybody's ever been called on the carpet at home or at school or if you stood before a judge. Has anybody in here been called on the carpet? God bless you. I see some people like holding up a finger because they don't want their neighbor to <laughs> see the whole arm. But nonetheless, I appreciate your honesty this morning. It's usually not a very pleasant thing. Because most of the, maybe not always, but in my case, I was never guilty. I was always a victim of circumstances. But most of the time, we're guilty when, when that happens to us, actually. In the New Testament, we, we find that the Apostle Paul had called the church at Corinth on the carpet. And, and what's interesting, a, a lot of times, I, I don't know how your bosses have been and supervisors in, in life, or principals, teachers, whatever. A lot of times... They don't smile when they call you on the carpet. It's sometimes they even raise their voice, and uh, sometimes they're, they're angry. But Paul, when he calls the Corinthians on the carpet, it's not a tone of reprimand, but he comes to it kind of in an antonym voice of called on the carpet in a commending way. Now, you have to keep in mind, we'll get into this in a minute, he's really upset with these people. So he writes them this letter, and, and look how he leads into it, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes, who was chief ruler of the synagogue at Corinth. We are writing to the church of God. You notice he says we, meaning God the Father, uh, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's not putting this completely on himself. He's saying that the Holy Spirit is flowing through his as he pins this letter. We are writing to the church of God in Corinth, you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did all Christians everywhere. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Christ, our Lord and theirs. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you his peace or grace and peace. I can never stop thanking God for all the generous gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. He has enriched your church with the gifts of eloquence and every kind of knowledge. This shows that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong right up to the end, and he will keep you free from all blame on the great day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will surely do this for you, for he always does just what he says, and he is the one who invited you into this wonderful friendship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You have heard, no doubt, the jokes 
about good news, bad news. And a lot of times they start out, I got good news and I got bad news. And usually the bad news is the punchline. But this, this joke that I read this week was a little different. This young man had a terrible automobile or a motorcycle wreck, and he was laying in a hospital bed, and he'd really messed his legs and feet up. And the doctor comes in, he said, Well, son, I got good news and I got bad news. And he said, uh, The bad news is that we're going to have to amputate your feet. He said, Man, Doc, what could be good? He said, That guy in the next room is willing to buy your cowboy boots. <laughs> That's a terrible joke, isn't it? <laughs> Here's another worse one, probably. We, 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 uh, we're big on truth, absolutes and truth. We always talk about it. But, uh, Diane, I, I wanted to see where you're at, because I always like to watch your reactions, because I, I want to see how the afternoon's going to go, actually. But anyhow, <laughs> my wife told me this joke, so I'm off the hook, regardless. I'm off the hook. Three things that are always true. Small children... Drunks and yoga pants. <laughs> There's nothing you can hide there, girls. You know what I'm saying? I'll be all called on the carpet for that, I'm sure, but it's true. I mean, you really think about that. Sorry, guys, for putting that word picture in your mind. I apologize for that. Oh. So Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, it follows this good news format. But it is no joke, and the punchlines hit hard with sharp commands and tough consequences. So here's, here's a breakdown of that first letter. After his customary greeting in chapter 1, 1 through 3, Paul begins by affirming the great truths of the gospel. He brings them back to the foundation of where it starts and where their life in Christ started. God had given the Corinthian believers grace through Christ Jesus, 1, 4. God had enriched them greatly, 1, 5. God had given them every spiritual gift in 1, 7. The Lord Jesus Christ would soon return, also in chapter 1, verse 7. God would give them the power to be strong and blameless, 1-8, and God is faithful in 1-9. Now, that's the good news. And then Paul punches out the rest of the story, beginning with the discussion of the divisions among believers and a strong appeal to unity. They were fighting. They weren't getting along. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 4, 21. Next, he moves swiftly to contemn us condemn a specific illicit relationship that was having in, people were having in the church, chapter 5, 1 and 2, lawsuits between Christians, which he condemns, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and sexual immorality, chapter 6, 9 through verse 20. Then Paul softens a little bit as he teaches about marriage and the single life in 7, 1 through the 40th verse. The relationship between conscience and freedom in Christ, 8, 1 through 10, 33. Order in worship services, 11, verses 1 through 34. Spiritual gifts, 12, 1 through 14, 40. And the reality and power of the resurrection, chapter 15, verses 1 through 58. So you notice he, he focuses a little more time on some than on the others. But in every one of these teachings that he's bringing across, there's the implication of a problem, that something had gone wrong, actually. Evidently, marriages were in trouble. Strong and weak Christians were in conflict. Worship, communion, and spiritual gifts were being abused and the wrong doctrine was being introduced. So Paul says this in chapter 15, 33, and 34. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So he closes the first letter 
with a reminder of the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, 16, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. His plans to visit the Corinthians 16, 5 through 9, and some miscellaneous comments and encouragements that he leaves with them in chapter 16, 10 through 20, 24. So the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians and what God is trying to say there and how this applies to you and I, actually. Here are some facts that we've got to come to grips with uh, and we need to understand. That when people become Christians, they don't at the same time become nice. Don't we wish that? But that's not the way it is. And this kind of always comes as a surprise. And I, I don't know if we are at fault as far as the clergy or evangelists, but sometimes we maybe paint the wrong picture of the kingdom and, and what that means when you come in, that, that God doesn't build a bubble and keep us from all trouble. Actually, sometimes the trouble increases. But the fact is the Holy Spirit comes in and he helps us through life, and that's, that's the difference. He gives us the power to live. The key word is obey. That once we come into the kingdom, we're, we're supposed to start to change, and this happens as we obey the Holy Spirit. Conversion to Christ and his ways doesn't automatically furnish person, a person with impeccable manners and suitable morals. A lot of us, myself included, bring excess baggage into the kingdom. Whatever that might be, whether it be a habit, it doesn't matter, but we, we don't leave it at the door, so to speak. We just bring it in, and, and, and God... You know the old gospel song we used to sing like 9,000 verses at the end of a service, just as I am. He does want us just as I am, but he expects us to start changing when we come to Christ. That, that, is, that is the point. But these people at Corinth had a reputation in the ancient world as an unruly, hard-drinking, sexually promiscuous bunch of people. We think, we, we say this, you know, things are, are a lot worse now. Well, I don't, I don't know if they are or not. They, maybe in some areas... But in this whole area of sexuality, I, I don't think we can grasp what ancient Corinth in Greece was like. That it was almost like people were making love on the street, and it wasn't a big deal. And when that happens, I know in some places in San Francisco and places like that, in New York City maybe. And anyhow, my point is that in Corinth, and Paul was writing this letter, he had started that church, and he was thinking about the city, that in the city that there were temples to all the gods and goddesses, and they had temple prostitutes that, male or female, it, it, whatever, you could go in and you could have sex 24-7. That, that was at their disposal. That, it was, so it was that free. It, you could just walk in and, and do that. And that these people had come out, come out of this culture, and he was trying to tell them that you shouldn't go back in to that culture, is what he's saying. He spent a year and a half with them as their pastor going over the message of the good news and showing them how to live out this new life of salvation and holiness as a community, as believers, as a family. Then he went on his way to other towns and churches. So sometimes later, he receives this letter from somebody at the church saying, man, Paul, since you left, this, this place has gone to hell, so to speak. And that's what he was saying. Excuse my language, but that it's went south. These people are doing exactly the opposite of what you preached and what you told them. we got a problem here. Actually, he got... He got two letters, and the second letter was, was about how the supernatural thing had come in, and some people had certain gifts, and others didn't. Well, and the ones that had it was lording it over, said, look how spiritual I am. I can do this and this and this, and it was causing problems. But 
You know, it's the kind of thing you might expect from Corinthians. They were a wild bunch. But his first letter is the classic of pastoral response, affection, firm, clear, unswerving in the conviction that God was among him, among them revealed in Jesus. I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great model for us for human relations, especially if you're a boss or a supervisor or if you're a parent. It, I don't think screaming and beating the table and throwing stuff is, a, is the way to bring somebody in when you call them on the carpet. I, I think the words should be spoken, but it should be done in love. And, and Paul was saying to them, you guys are still worth something to God. You, you're still valuable. But here I want, to, I want you to get back of, to where you need to be in, in your life with Christ so things will be better for you. Uh, regardless of what a mess they were in, he didn't, I don't think he, he, he went into a tirade or uh, first started talking about their bad behavior um, he takes it in stride and uh, wants to instill the glorious love of Christ back into their lives. He just makes them see where they're at, actually. He explains in love the fact that the church in Corinth had become carnal, that the members had become carnal believers. That, that's a strange word to me. It, 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 has, it has, you know, we say four-letter words when people use profanity. That, that is a, it's almost a four-letter word to me. It's because the meaning behind it and, and the thrust that uh, the, the writers of the Bible, as they translated, or the English, as they translated this into English from the Greek, it, sometimes it loses some of its weight. It's a, very, it's a very heavy word. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul brings it up. And this is New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to mature Christians. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to the world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. King James Version says, as though you were carnal, worldly. That's the name for carnal, I think. Carnal packs a little more wallop to it than world. But nonetheless, that is the point. And you were infants in the Christian life. He said, you were babes in Christ. And babies, we know how babies, I love babies, but babies take... 24/7 care almost. You got to diaper them. You got to feed them. You got to give them their bottle when their bottle when they scream. You you hope that they don't stay babies all your life, all their life. You hope they they grow up and start to mature and they start to dress themselves and they start to feed themselves. This was the point that Paul made when he went and planted that church. Year and a half, he planted it, left them with what they needed, and moved on. And it comes back that the place was still full of screaming babies. That, that was the point that he was making. The Greek word used here for world is the word sarkikos. It's from sarx, which is the flesh, which is our earthly part, which is our old nature. It's the part that likes the mud, that doesn't want to listen to God. It signifies having the nature of flesh, sensual, controlled by animal appetites, governed by human nature instead of by the Spirit of God, having its seat in the animal nature or excited by it. Sarkikos is where we get the word carnal, and Webster defines carnal like this. Relating to the desires and appetites of the flesh or body, sensual, animal, worldly or earthly, not spiritual, not holy or sanctified. It's living under the influence of our old natures instead of the new. And I've said this a thousand times, what we know about the old nature. Our old nature loves the mud. It loves sin. It, we, we can't paint that any other way. 
So in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells us that there are three classes of people on this earth. A lot of people will divide caste systems up in a lot of different ways. India is, 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 is probably the most prominent country that has caste systems, and they say they don't, but they do. Uh, there was a group called the Untouchables that out in public, no one else could talk to them, or even that's why they called the Untouchables, they couldn't touch them. But don't kid yourself. We have caste systems in America. There are caste systems in Sullivan. It, it's who you are, who your parents were, what circles you run in, and a lot of times it, we, don't, we want to ignore that, but, it, but it's true. A lot of people will divide people by race, color, language, whatever. Paul says there's these three classes of people on this earth. First, there's committed followers of Christ that listen to the Holy Spirit. And second, he mentions carnal Christians that still obey the old nature on occasion. And then he mentions unbelievers, which are lost people, which I think are lost children trying to find their way back to the Father's house. I like that concept. His desire was that these believers in Corinth would become committed followers of Christ instead of worldly carnal believers. And the reason he did that was for their own benefit and for the benefit of the kingdom. I've lived as a carnal believer before. I, I know how that is. And most of the time, when you're away from church, you're doing what the old nature wants. But you change when you come into the church on Sunday morning and you smile and everybody thinks everything's okay. And the problem is with that, the only input a lot of times that carnal believers get is what they get this hour. Or if you come to Chris's class, which I hope you do, or another group, you, you take in more. But otherwise, that, that's the extent. And how can you grow and be stronger in Christ if, if that's the only spiritual intake that you take in your entire week? Look how many hours is in a week. And besides that, carnal Christians are probably not going to be good witnesses because they're doing what everybody else is doing. And they, they don't help build the kingdom. And a lot of times when they come back into the church, and I live this so I know it firsthand, that you're miserable and the guilt just falls off of you. And you come to the front and fall down on your face and say, I'm not going to do it again. And then you get up on Monday and you don't really mean it. And you go out and do the same thing over and over and over again. As we read and study Corinthians, we discover and realize that it is possible for a Christian to live on a carnal level instead of on a spiritual level. It's possible. It's possible to walk after the flesh even though we are converted to walk in the Spirit. It is possible to be saved, but to be saved as by fire, one day to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, stripped of everything but our soul salvation. And as God, as Jesus goes over our works at the Bema seat, at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, he goes over our works as a believer. He burns up what's worthless and saves what's precious. And how many of us don't want to be standing in front of our Lord with no jewels, no precious stones, but our hands full of ashes. It can just be blown away. But we're there. And we're there because of Christ's blood, and he saved us, uh, and because of grace, actually. And it's because we've played this game, and we never got to the point. Here's the danger point in that is if we are really carnal, when we get to that point, when we feel the Holy Spirit coming and wooing and prompting us, we finally say, 
you know what, God? I'm done with you. I, I don't want any more to do with you. My friends, I'm telling you, that I've been there. I, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Christ does not desire that we make it by the skin of our teeth, but that we live useful lives in his kingdom, obedient lives, lives where he can love us and bless us. I don't think we can fathom in our, our, our finite minds that the amount of blessings that God has, has got stored up for all of us, that he wants to pour out on us when we're obedient. I think in life we, we miss a lot of those. It comes by putting him first in our every area and facet of our lives. The Corinthian letter exposes the tragedy of low-level Christian living and reveals the glory of a journey made under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Actually, this is a letter to the Crossroads Community Church. It's from God to us, to you and I. It's, we sit here in this grand old building at 2 South Court, Sullivan, Indiana, 47. 882. So you might read these opening words and you might be thinking, how does these ancient words apply to us today? We are distant from the original readers of time and space and culture and language. But as you study this, we find that there we, we, there's five striking similarities that you and I have with these ancient Corinthians. Number one is this. We are people equally needing God's truthful instruction, and we need a steady diet of this truth in our lives. Number two, we live in a similarly aggressive, pluralistic society that denies absolutes and makes personal rights the absolute. We live in a post-truth era, and I've talked about this. Feelings and opinions are what people say is the truth, and I can do what I want because I tell the truth, and this truth is mine and mine alone. So how dare you question me for what I do in my life or even with my children, actually, because I am kind of the master of my own destiny. And this is not absolute truth. This was some ancient book that was written by a bunch of lunatics, and I've had people almost tell me that. So they have no guide to, to guide things. Can, can, I can't imagine a, a society where there are no rules. Oh, we got rules now, but we have rules because Christians in our past has laid them down and we were built on that foundation. But as that foundation starts to crumble, we, we need to hang on. I don't think in 20 years America's going to look like it does now because it's going to be different. All of, everything is, is jumbled up and changing. Laws won't even make any difference, not that we know them now. Because what you do, if you want to commit a crime, that's your truth, and you should be allowed to do that. It's, I know I'm talking out of my head, but I, I, I do believe that, uh, uh, not to be a doomsdayer, but that's where we're headed. Three, this claim to personal rights challenges the lordship of Jesus Christ within the church today, even as it did then. It's the attitude that I am going to do what I want when I want, and shake our fists at God and say, who are you to tell me what to do? I will live my life. Number four, the ancient philosophy that, that power and money make right continues to divide churches and destroy people's lives. It creates church bosses who demand their own way instead of the Holy Spirit. And in fifth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ remains the solid fact upon which our faith rests. To some, it will always be a stumbling block. So in spite of the obvious differences between ourselves and the Corinthians, the points of similarity make it crucial that we read this letter as God's word 
for us here today. So as you read your Bibles, read 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. And hopefully it will challenge you and I and completely examine our own walk and in all sincerity and honesty ask ourselves, am I a carnal Christian? Have I got to the place in my life as a believer, as a churchgoer, that I love the world more than I love Jesus? That I listen to myself more than I listen to the Holy Spirit? And if I died today, would I make it to heaven by the skin of my teeth? Or would I make it at all? Valid questions that you and I always should ask ourselves. There's a lot of things in life that we don't know for sure, but this is one of them. You should know 24-7 that you belong to Christ and that if you were killed walking out this door, that you'd go immediately to heaven. We, that's our hope. It's our security. It's what, it what, it's what keeps us on an even keel, so to speak. So as the, the band comes, I, I just ask you as your pastor, because I love you, I, I just want you to be able to answer those questions. I want you to say, no, I'm... I'm a committed Christian. I listen to the Holy Spirit. Those of you that haven't made a decision yet, I just I beg you almost to that point that you at least ponder it this morning. You need Jesus and you want to be showed how, just come on up and you need prayed with. There are people here that love you and want to pray with you. I've said this a lot. We are faced with difficult choices in this life. And as we get older, they become more difficult sometimes. But as far as difficulty, us being committed Christians will be the most difficult thing you'll do on the face of this earth. It, it rises above everything else. But the thing is, if we can stick to it, it, it has the most blessings, and it pays dividends beyond your belief in this life and the next. Lord, we love you, and I just thank you for my friends here, and uh, I just ask, Father, that we're dishonest. I always ask that every Sunday. Was at this at the close, uh, Holy Spirit, you come to every heart and you speak to us, and it's our prerogative because we're free moral agents in that sense that so we can tune you out. We can look at our cell phone, we can read our email, we can text somebody, we can think about what we're going to be doing in the next hour, where we're going to eat, and on and on. And there's a lot of things that distract us. Right now, in this moment, Holy Spirit, I just pray that as you speak to each one of our hearts, that we listen and are obedient, and whatever that might be. If we need to come and have, be prayed with, we'll come. If we need Christ, that we either accept you, Lord, right where we're at, or we come down here and have somebody show us, whatever. But nonetheless, it's, uh, it's the fact that I want us to leave here free and at peace. We love you, God, and we give you all the praise and the glory for being so good to us. For we ask in the name of Christ, amen.